We're going to start a new series today called uh, Relations in Genesis. Relations in Genesis. What's that mean? Well, the book of Genesis is probably uh, one of the most controversial, most debated, most disbelieved books in the whole Bible, in particular the first 11 chapters of it. Uh, It's it's a very... um, frustrating book for some people and they get caught on uh, you know chapter one and the whole creation thing and get into huge debates about creation and evolution and six days and 24 hours and not 24 hours and how can you believe in a talking snake and all this kind of stuff that people just get tied up in and what happens when we do that is we miss the overall thrust of the book Uh, it's it's in the beginning And this is the beginning of everything, including the beginning of human relationships. And what you see when you look at the book of Genesis and you think about the way that people are with each other, the way married couples treat one another, the way they treat their children, the way that children treat their parents, the way that extended families treat one another and so on. And you look at all of that and you see all these different kinds of relationships and it really jumps off the page because while you expect all of these major figures of Genesis to be perfect, you know, and Noah and Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob and all of these people and Moses, and you expect them, if, if this was some sort of fable, to be these great champions of perfect behavior and all of that. And what you see in the book of Genesis is is kind of the opposite. You see these raw stories of real people and all of their problems and their good things and their bad things. And it really helps us to relate to them because we have some of the same problems today, don't we? And you can look at at, at Genesis in terms of the relationships people have with one another and it will transform your life. Uh, Sure, it's a relevant study to think about the origins and all of that stuff. Sure it is, but it's much better when you look at the book as a whole and consider it a book of origins. Uh, Today, we're going to start right at the beginning, and we're going to look at marriage, and in particular, the marriage of guess who? Right? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. You had it? You had it a little better there. We still got some feedback cooking, all right? So... You keep there, that's better. Uh, So we're going to talk about them this morning. Now, I don't want you to get tied up in, well, you know, you actually believe that Adam and Eve existed and you expect me to believe in a serpent and a talking snake and all of that. Like, I don't want you to get tied up in that. The way that this is presented in the scripture, if you look at what Paul thought about Adam and Eve and origins. If you look at what Jesus thought about Adam and Eve and origins, if you just look at the narrative itself and the way that it's presented, the way that it's presented is we're expected to believe that these were real people and that this really happened. You can debate all you want, whether it was billions of years ago or thousands of years ago. Go ahead and debate that. I've done that for years and years. It's a big, big ball of yarn, okay? You can go ahead and do that if you want to. But the way this is presented is is as if these people are real. So wherever you are with this whole thing of, you know, Adam and Eve and creation and origins and all that, I want you to try and, and take it as it is. 
and take it as it is presented as if these people are real people. Because when you do that, you're actually going to see yourself in them at some point. So I want you to shout out to me what you know about this first couple of the Bible, Adam and Eve. And you can post online if you want. We'll watch for your comments and post them as well. Just go ahead and shout it out. Man and woman. All right. And the, the name Adam means man. Naked. Yeah. <laughs> no one wants to say that. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, before the fall, you know, these people walked around with no clothes. Okay. Fig leaves. Yeah. It tied those fig leaves on after the fall. We think about that. Anything else? Childbearing. Childbearing. Okay. Yeah. They, they, they had the first kids. Yes. The garden, yeah, the garden of Eden where they were placed, yes? The forbidden fruit, the apple. The Bible doesn't say it's an apple, but it says it's a fruit. What's that? The cherubim, okay, yeah, that's uh, when they, after they were cast out of the garden, you had this angelic being that blocked access to the tree of life, yes? Disobedience, okay, mm -hmm. we'll talk about that. The famous snake or serpent, as we translate it into English. We're not sure. Created in the image of God. Good, yeah. yeah. You're missing one thing. They were hiding. Good. Yeah, they hid after, after they uh, uh, disobeyed. They were hiding from God, yes. First marriage, okay, good. You're missing one thing. They were what? What? Naked and unashamed, indeed, they were. But you're still missing one thing. Disobedient, yes. You're still missing one thing. Banished, yes. You're still missing one thing. Ah, there it is. Yeah, Eve was created from Adam's rib. Or, it doesn't really say, the language just means side. Doesn't necessarily mean rib, but we sometimes translate. Good, that's really good, all right? But I want to show you some things that maybe you haven't seen before. That sounds better. There's less feedback. Can we give them an amen? Hey, there, you're getting better. You're getting better. Uh, uh, but I want to show you some things that maybe you haven't seen and maybe you haven't thought about. If you're married in this room, you need to take notes or you need to watch this again. Every time I read this narrative in Genesis, it's only really two chapters that we see this couple, something jumps off the page. If you're married, you need to tune in, get your, stay tuned in or watch it again later. If you're not married, but maybe one day you will be, you need to tune in to, to these two chapters in the book of Genesis. If you were married and you're not anymore, I mean, it, this is relevant even for everybody, even for people who will never get married. The, the things in here that we learn about people, that we learn about relationships, it's just stunning. So just a few things to show you here to set the context. Um, before Eve, and she's only given the name Eve after the fall, but before Eve... You have Adam, right? He's the one who was created first. And how was he created? Right? But how? Out of dust. 
Again, this is the way that it's presented. I'd like you to take it at face value this morning, even if you struggle with that. So you have, you have Adam, and you have very, very simple, but very important. You've got two trees. What are the two trees? Right? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you've got two trees, and you've got one choice. This is his, this is what he knows from God so far. Two trees, one choice. You see it in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 to 17. The Lord God had planted uh, a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Remember that. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's all these different waters that are mentioned around the the location. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it, and he commanded the man. Here is the, the word of God to this man. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat of it, you will certainly die. He's got two trees. He's got one choice. Don't eat of that tree. This is the command of God given to him. I have no idea what these trees may or may not have looked like, the, the tree of life is certainly presented as some kind of real tree because we do see at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the tree of life is, is accessible again somehow. We're talking about supernatural stuff, yes, but in a very real sense this is presented throughout the scripture. Okay, so um, I'm just putting a couple of trees here that look real nice, all right? So he's got two trees. He's got one choice. The woman is not around yet. Eve has not yet been created, but then she is. Verse 20 to 24, Adam is a taxonomist for, if you put it in modern terms, he gives names to everything, and for him, there's no suitable helper. So... The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, as it's sometimes translated. It just means something from his side. And then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the side that he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh, quoted by Jesus many, many centuries later. Uh, Genesis 2 and 24, often wed, uh, often, wed, often read at weddings, that passage. But I want you to notice something about it, because sometimes people read that and they say, oh, look at this, you know, the subservient woman taken from the side of the, from the rib of, of Adam, you know, this is, this is a typical domi- male domination and all of that. Folks, if you put this, if you look at it through a 21st century viewpoint, yes, 
But that's not the viewpoint. If you look at it from the viewpoint of the people who originally read this or originally heard this, it would have been very different uh, than what they were used to. Because the competing religions of the day taught that a woman was created from an inferior material than man. And therefore, man was superior to woman because uh, whatever the gods used to create man, the gods used something inferior, lesser quality material to create woman. And yet here you have, in, out of Moses' account here, you have the woman created from the side. This actually suggests an equality when you contrast it up against the, the competition and the various religious views of the day. Do you see that? All right, you can, you can struggle with whether or not this really happened all you want, but what it's teaching is actually an equality between the sexes and not a superiority of man to woman. And then you have what we call the fall, the fall in Genesis chapter 3, and I've got a little upside-down apple there, okay? We don't know if it was an apple, which just says fruit, but we typically make this into an apple. And the fall shows us so much about us, so much about us. And I want to give you a few little lessons here and show you some examples from today that connect directly to what's written here in in this whole narrative. Okay, number one, and this slips by so quickly that you don't, you don't even see it. When you read this narrative, you gotta think about it as if it really, really happened. And that's when it starts to impact you. Number one, God expects, this is, this is a vital key to a successful marriage. God expects a spiritual unity in marriage. You see that in this text, but you've got to look for it. So Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 3. When the temptation happens, the famous temptation, I'm still fighting a little bit of, little bit of feedback. If you want to turn my fader down, it might... It might uh, okay, well, whatever. If you, if you hear it on your end, then you try and fix it. So in Genesis 3 and verse 3... And this is where the temptation comes and Eve is, is the one who's being spoken to here. Watch this closely, very, very closely. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Watch this very slowly. The woman replies to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. My question is, where did she get that information? You say, well, she got it from God. Never says that God told her that. The person who originally got that information was who? It was Adam. And so what we're left to observe here is that Adam 
receive this word of God, if you want to call it that, revelation from God. And Adam successfully transmitted this information to the woman, to Eve. So the two of them were united in this very simple uh, uh, command to obey that they could not eat from that tree. They seem to be in lockstep here. And she is saying it exactly how it was said to Adam. She received this information from Adam. The two of them are in sync. The two of them are in unity in their obedience to this command. And she reiterates this to this serpent figure. This suggests a unity in this couple that they were united. And by the way, it doesn't suggest that, well, you know, God speaks to the man and the man speaks to the woman, so she should just be quiet and listen to the man and wait for God to speak to the man and the man will speak to the woman. No, it doesn't suggest that. What it suggests is a unity in this couple and that the couple were united in this basic command of obedience. Folks, this is something that we see throughout the Bible. This is all throughout the Scripture that God calls in a marriage a couple to be united in a spiritual sense, not just in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. A text that's often used for this, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, not really speaking to marriage in context, but definitely applies to marriage. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. A yoke was a harness between two animals. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? This is a name for the devil. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? This is the one concern that God has in marriage. One, he, he is not particularly concerned, young people, listen, he's not particularly concerned if you feel the sparks fly when you're with the person. And if the sparks aren't there, maybe it's not the person God has for you. No, that's not God's primary concern. Well, you know, I'm not so sure we share similar hobbies and interests and so on. Uh, that's not God's primary concern. God's primary concern is, are you of like faith? Because if you take a believer, for example, and you take it a non-believer, even a, two believers in two different religious views, and you put them together in something like marriage, of which there's no other kind of relationship like that, it's completely unique, then what you're going to have is a clash. And if you take light and you take darkness and you put them together, what are you going to have? You're going to have a marriage of shadows. That's what you're going to have. You're going to have difficulty. You're going to have problems. It's not impossible, but you're going to have a challenge on your hands. And usually, it's the Christian who, who compromises and finds themselves struggling more than the non-Christian. 
which is probably pretty normal. So that's, this is a key, key thing. There's a unity in the spiritual sense that God calls for. And often, and some of you married couples can testify to it, you know, you feel a particular direction that maybe God is calling you to in life. It's a big life change, job, leaving something, moving somewhere, not leaving your spouse, by the way, leaving somewhere, that's a joke. Okay, leaving where you live, going to move somewhere else, some, some big life change. And, and this is common in, in married couples. You both feel the same thing from God at the same time, sometimes without even communicating with one another about it. Then when you do communicate with one another, by say, yeah, I, I feel the same way. I felt the same way about that decision, about that uh, choice that we were going to make. This is because God desires a spiritual unity in a couple, this is a basic foundational thing, and you see it even in Adam and Eve, even in this snapshot as we look at the fall. The, the sound is a little bit better. Thank you for struggling along this morning. Uh, Omar, you're doing a, a terrific job. So uh, next observation for you to, to see here, and this again slips by very, very quickly. God expects each spouse each spouse to protect one another from spiritual deception. Listen closely to me on this one because the operating ground of the enemy, the, the, the way that he works, and this is sustained throughout the scripture, okay? No matter what perspective someone wants to take, the scripture does indeed teach that there is a devil. Very, very clearly. But the operating ground that he traffics in is right up here. It's right in your head. That's where he operates. And what he does is deceive people. He gets people thinking falsely about themselves, falsely about God, falsely about Jesus, falsely about the devil, falsely about the world around them. And he gets people to believe things that are not true. And what's going on in this temptation, which as far as I'm concerned, is a brilliant temptation. There's nobody who could have faced this temptation and beat it. In fact, we're beaten by it every day. If you really study it and look at what's going on here, the serpent comes to Eve specifically, not to Adam, we're told. He's there, but the dialogue is between the woman and the serpent. Look at the question. Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden. Now, the question here is not, did God actually use those words? Like, historically, did God actually say that? That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is he's trying to cast doubt on the character of God and on his motivation for this command. It's as if to say in the 21st century, you know, he really said that? God really said that? Is that what God said? Hmm. 
And of course, she replies, we may eat from the fruit and the, from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Good. It's a good answer that she gave, but he retorts back and he says, you will not certainly die. Here's what's going on, Eve. God is holding out on you. He has not told you the truth about life. Let me tell you a secret. Let me give you information that God has withheld from you because God, his character is not trustworthy. And I'm about to tell you why. God knows something. He hasn't told you, but I know it. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is a brilliant tactic that's being used here. And what people often get, get wrong about this narrative is they say, well, the devil is lying. He's lying in part. It's a partial lie. The lie is you will certainly not die. This is false. Indeed, they will die. This is what God told them, and this is what happens to them. Not all at once, but you see a chain of events beginning at Genesis chapter 3. So that's the lie. But the truth of it is, God knows that when you will eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. That, my friends, turned out to be true. It's often not recognized that way, but it turned out to be true because God later says, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So that part of it was true. But the false part of it was, you will not certainly die. It is a brilliant temptation. It is a very cunning and very slick lie. And Eve takes the bait and she looks when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. This is back from Genesis chapter 2. The same phrase is there. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. So she's told by the serpent. She took some and ate it. Watch. She also gave some to her husband who was there. And he ate it. <laughs> I mean, he was there. What's he doing? What, why did he not stop her from eating the fruit? Why, even if, even if this is a conversation that's a mental dialogue, let's say. We don't know. But let's say it's a mental dialogue and he sees her reach for the fruit. It says he's there. Why does he not stop her? Eve, what are you doing? Snap out of it. <laughs> why does he not do anything? He watches her eat this fruit 
And then she gives him some, and he uh, he takes the fruit. What's he doing? Sending an email? Like, how does he miss this? How? Why does he not protect his wife from this lie? We don't know. We're not told. It doesn't say. All we know is he's he's like a, to use an expression today. He's like a deer with the headlights on on this one. I mean, he is on cloud nine while his wife is being tempted really, really badly. Like, this is a brilliant temptation. He, the guy is on cloud nine. He does not protect her. He just goes along with it and he eats the fruit. I mean, this is a disaster because of this moment. This was a very clear, succinct command of God. It's his business whether or not he wants to say what eating from the tree will do or not do. That's God's prerogative. The serpent has knowledge of this, and of course, he's going to cast doubt on the character of God. God is not to be trusted. God is holding out on you. I'll give you the information that you want to know, and if you do what I say, you just watch what happens. And lo and behold, it happens, but it turns into a nightmare. And you see the behavior immediately start to take place. What you have is a, is a brokenness in that marriage that was once spiritually united. You have an immediate, it's, it's cracking all over the place. And you see it very quickly. The man and his wife, they... they they see that they are naked, They're, they realize it, they cover themselves at least as best as they can, they hear the sound of God as they're walking, or as they're in the garden, and they do what? They hide. They hide from him. Why are they hiding from him? They had a relationship with him without shame. They had a relationship with him where nothing was hidden from God, and now they're hiding from God. One of the most uh, thought-provoking questions that God asks in the entire Bible is in verse 9. He calls out to the man, specifically, Where are you? Oh, what a question. <laughs> it's not just talking about where is he in a physical sense. Where are you? Like Adam. Where are you? I mean, I look at this story and say, where are you? Where is your head? What were you thinking? And he answers, well, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God says, as if he doesn't know, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you, Adam? I commanded you not to eat from and look at his response. Shows a fracture in their marriage. The woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. <laughs> what? The, you watched her eat the fruit. You did nothing. She gives you the fruit. You do nothing but eat the fruit. And then you turn around and you blame her? And you point the finger at her? 
every person for himself. It's immediately on the stage here. Forget about spiritual unity. He's protecting himself. He doesn't really care about the way that God looks at her or his failure in protecting her. Forget it. It's her fault. The woman you put here with me, she she did it. She gave it to me and I ate it because, you know, I just do what she says and I don't think about anything. This is a... You, and you see this, folks. Sometimes you see this in marriage even today, where you've got a spouse, doesn't have to be the husband, a wife, it doesn't, doesn't matter either. And you've got a spouse, and the spouse just is at a point where all they do is just do whatever the other one says. Anything, they're, they're so fed up, they're so bitter, they're so... Just, they've just lost everything in terms of respect for that person. They just say, whatever you want, I'll just do it. Whatever you want, I'll just be a, a sort of robot. And I won't think and I won't participate in making decisions and be spiritually united with you. Forget it. You just do whatever and I'll just follow along suit like a robot. There are a lot of marriages that operate like that where one partner has just given up. And they, they, they don't participate in spiritual unity with the other, and that's it. It's finished. The woman you put with me here, it's her fault. So God goes to the woman, says, what is this you have done? What does she do? Well, she can't blame Adam, really, because she gave the fruit to Adam, right? So what does she do? Well, the devil made me do it. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Right, but who ate? She ate. The serpent didn't eat. He presented the temptation. It's a brilliant temptation. In my view, we take this temptation all the time. Because what do we do in our excuses as a culture to, to, to disbelieve in God? What do we say? Well... If God is this, then why does this happen? If God fill in the blanks, then why does God fill in the blanks? If God is, is, a, is a, a good, then why did this bad happen to me? And what that is, is a veiled accusation, sometimes a very direct accusation against who? Against God. As if God is the one with the problem, you know, why hasn't God revealed himself? If God is so real, as you say, then why is he hiding? Why does he make himself so hard to figure out? Why does he do that? This always seems to be God's fault. Or most of the time, it's God who's got the problem. And this is right out of Genesis chapter 3. This is what the, the serpent does. He casts doubt in terms of uh, you know, there's a good doubt and a bad doubt. Okay, I believe in good doubt. You know, Thomas was a good doubter. You know, he said, unless I see the, 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 the prince in his hands and put my hand in Jesus' side, who was crucified, I will not believe that he rose from the dead. Okay, that, in a way, that's a good doubt. And Jesus, what does he do? He appears to Thomas and says, hey, Thomas, put your hands here, see? Put your hands here, see? And what does Thomas do? He says, my Lord and my God. Wow, that's a good doubt. He proclaims the deity of Jesus. But here this is a bad doubt. This is to cast the character of God into question and to accuse God. And this is what 
the devil does to people all the time. It's always God's problem when people have a posture of unbelief against God. It's, it's, he's the one who's responsible for my unbelief, not me. And here you have Eve saying, well, the serpent deceived me, true, and I ate. But you ate, Eve. You ate, and there's consequences to this. You've got a broken marriage here, and what you have is broken relations that are going to follow and follow and follow in the sexes. And when I say sexes, just in parentheses here, because it's the 21st century, I mean male and female when I say that, okay? Biological male, biological female. What you have here is a fracture that's happening, and it's going to happen, and you see God is going to say, here's the consequences of the actions here. And first he deals with the serpent, and he puts this proverbial curse on the serpent and says, you will crawl on your belly, you will eat dust all the days of your life. But watch, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Someone is coming down the road. We'll get into that in just a few moments. But watch, to the woman, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, the whole labor pain thing. But watch the end of the passage. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What is that? Remember, this is a negative consequence of disobedience here. What's being said here is there's going to be problems in your marriage and the problems are going to deal with the area of control. You're going to want to control him and he's going to want to control you. The spiritual unity is going to be put to a test it's going to be challenged because now the two of you are battling for control over one another. And you see this in marriages that are struggling. One spouse wants to control the other one, and the other one won't be controlled. And then they want to control the other one, and they won't be controlled. And it's a battle between the two of them. And the problem is that biological males, folks, Maybe this is going to sound offensive. I'm just going to say it. Biological males have more brute force than biological females, typically. And what happens is they use that brute force and that physical strength to dominate, just as it says here. He will rule over you. This is not in a good sense. This is not a a, a declaration of God. This is, a, this is a, a negative consequence. This is what the man is going to do. And you see this over and over and over again in, in marriages where you've got an abuser, a physical abuser who wants to control. Most often that's the man. Sometimes it's a woman. Most often it's the man. Abuse. You even see it, folks. I've seen it in Christian households where you have that physical uh, force is used as an advantage to control and to abuse and to 
dominate. And it's awful. And you see it right here in the narrative. If you, again, think about it slowly, read between the lines, look at the language. And you see this. Paul would write to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 5, verse 21, something very much to the contrary of what you see in Genesis 3, 15. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is directed to husbands, and this is directed to wives. Submit to one another. You say, well, what about uh, wives obey your husbands in everything? Well, I'll talk about that on Wednesday night, okay? You can come on to our Zoom Bible study. The link's on our homepage. And I will break that passage down for, for you. It means something very different than what you think it traditionally means. Paul is teaching mutual submission here because he's after that ideal, Where did the spiritual unity go? It got attacked at the fall, but it can be recovered in Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But here you've got this battle of the sexes. You see it all over the place, not just in marriage. A vivid example coming out of today's news. Folks, this is a... like If you want to watch something that displays this... This trial uh, out of the United States uh, has got tens of thousands of people watching it every day. This is like as popular as uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. I mean, you can watch this thing on YouTube all day long. It's going into the fourth week. This man, Daryl Brooks, drove his SUV into a Thanksgiving Day parade last year and killed six people and injured many, many other people. He's facing 76 criminal charges, including six counts of intentional homicide. This is in Wisconsin, in the United States. What is so fascinating to watch about this trial is Genesis 3.15, because the attack against a female judge, the judge is a woman, and she is showing a ridiculous amount of patience with this man. The way that he behaves in the courtroom is right out of this passage. The desire to control and dominate her, the whole thing started because of a fight with his girlfriend or his ex-girlfriend. He got into the van and he's angry and he plowed through this, this parade and killed all of these people and now on trial and trying to defend himself. It's It's infuriating to watch, but fascinating about the same time. He even takes out a Bible and reads a Bible in front of her. And I want to scream at the the screen and say, buddy, look at verse 15 of Genesis 3. You're doing exactly what God said. This is the result of the fall, folks. It affects so many areas of life. And you continue and you, you, you look at the consequences of this. What does he say to Adam? Because you listened to your wife and you ate the fruit from the tree. You should not have done what she said, Adam. You ate the fruit from that tree. I commanded you not to eat from it. Here's what the consequences are going to be. They're quite severe. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. Okay, in, in the poetic language that's being used there, what's being said is that the creation is going to turn on you, Adam. The creation that, was, that you were in authority over is going to become dangerous. When you've got thorns coming out of that, uh, a plant or whatever, or thistles, that's danger. That's, that's a, you're now in conflict with nature. It's going to be dangerous for you. It's going to turn on you. You buy the sweat of your brow. It's not going to be easy anymore to operate in nature. It's going to be hard for you, Adam, and it's going to be hard for everyone else. You have brought this thing into creation itself is now fallen because of you. We see this New Testament, Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 21, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. In context, it's talking about when Jesus returns, the creation is going to be redeemed from its decay and from its brokenness and its bondage to decay. Folks, what do we see? Creation, while extremely beautiful, while it's God's sermon to the nations to look around at creation, it's also extremely dangerous. There's thorns and thistles on steroids in creation. This is a satellite image of the latest uh, hurricane, what, Fiona. Look at the size of that thing over on the right-hand side of your screen off of Florida and so on. That's thorns and thistles, folks, on steroids. It is the creation in bondage to decay. Very beautiful, very awesome, but very, very dangerous. Right out of the pages of Genesis. Say, man, that is, it, it, it all goes by so fast. But when you think about the consequences of all of this, and when you look at this marriage, it is so sad what happened to this couple and how quickly this happened. But I'm here to, to end today with some really, really good news. It's back in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. There's going to be some type of division. Something is coming between the offspring of this serpent, whatever that means, and the offspring of the woman. And look what happens. He, it's a person here, is going to crush your head, Mr. Serpent. If any of you have ever killed a snake before, that's how you do it. You've got to go for the head. 
I have fallen in love with the mongoose. Any of you know about what a mongoose is? Mongoose, the, the animal, have no fear of venomous snakes. It is fascinating. They actually have an immunity, a degree of immunity to venomous snakes. And I've been watching these videos of these, these fearless creatures. Little tiny mongoose like this looks like a cute little squirrel can take out a black mamba snake, can take out a king cobra. And what they do with that snake, they torment that snake. They're so fast. The snake lunges for that mongoose, and the mongoose can do like these matrix moves and jump up backwards, upside down, like you've never seen anything like this creature. And it torments this snake. And then what does it do? It goes for the head. And when it goes for the head, that's it. And it has no fear of any kind of snake. It's amazing little creatures, the mongoose. Here you have someone coming. It's a he. And he's going to deliver a lethal blow to the serpent and effectively kill the serpent. And yet we're told that the serpent is going to give a blow to the heel of this he, whoever's coming. So something's going to happen to the he. It's going to get bit by presumably a venomous viper of some sort. But at the same time, that's going to be a death blow to the serpent. Folks, what we're looking at here is, is, is quite staggering. Uh, scholars have a, have a fancy name for this. What, what you have is the gospel in a very, very rough sense here. Because who is it that came and and died, so you know there was a, uh, uh, something very severe that happened to this person, but at the same time delivered a blow to Satan himself. Who is that? Well, it's Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, he disarmed the powers and the principalities. First uh, John chapter 3, the reason why the Son of God came was to destroy the devil's work. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. Ding, ding, ding. That's from Genesis chapter 3. Born under law to redeem those under law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Romans 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is post-cross, post-crucifixion, uh, told to the Roman church to encourage them as if they somehow will have a part in the ultimate demise of Satan and his kingdom. My goodness, I mean, you have a promise here, a rough promise. Someone is coming and he's going to make right what was made wrong by this fall. It's going to come. And this is the gospel in a very, very rough sense. Why do I tell you this and end this way? Because in Christ, your marriage can be healthy. It can be whole. It takes work. 
Yes, you've got you've to maintain that spiritual unity. You've got to submit to one another. You've got to protect one another from deception. You've got to stop accusing one another. It's your fault. It's your fault. You've got to stop wanting to try to control one another. But you can do all of those things, not in your own strength, but in Christ, the, the seed who came to destroy the works of Satan. Folks, that's good news. That's good news for your life. That's good news for your marriage. Would you stand with me? We're going to close in prayer. Uh, Nick and Rose, if you're around, or maybe just Nick, you, you can come, the, the married couple, 30 whatever years, please come up and, uh, and play a little bit in the background here. But we're going to pray for you and for uh, marriages at this point. Uh, Father, I thank you for each person in the room today, uh, uh, people online, and uh, Lord, it's the fabric, it's the fabric of society, it's the fabric of the culture of the home, uh, stable marriages and stable families, and Lord, I, I pray for each person, there are people in this room who, they've been through it, they've lived through it, the pain of it, and and their marriage may be ended as a result, and they can say, yes, we saw all of this. We saw all of this in our marriage. There are those who are in the room, and they're fighting for it. They're trying to, to be healthy, maybe struggling some days, maybe doing well on other days. Uh, there are those, Lord, who are married maybe for many decades, and, and God have come to a place where, where these things are in a constant focus and priority, and there's health there. Uh, Lord, there are people in the, the beginning of their marriages and just just getting used to it. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that by your grace and by the power of the risen Savior, that one who came, that one who died on the cross and rose from the dead, Lord, your power would just pour into homes and pour into marriages and bring healing and bring restoration and bring forgiveness and bring health in the name of Jesus. Lord, there's no situation that is beyond your hand of healing and of repair. Uh, I, I pray you would work in the hearts of, of couples, work in the hearts of individuals, uh, Lord, that our homes, however they may be composed, God, that they would be healthy. Lord, that there would be a spiritual health in people's relationships, in their marriages. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you today. Uh, remember to visit the desk out in the foyer. You can pick up some boxes for Operation Christmas Child. Pick up your kids in screen number 11. God bless you today. Have a great Sunday.